welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Today's episode is the second part of my conversation with Brian Earp. In the first part, we covered the replication crisis, i.e. the fallout that the results in a lot of psychology and a lot of other social sciences and even sciences in general cannot be replicated. If they're done a second time, you don't get the same results. And what that means... In this episode, we continue the conversation about replicatability. We also talk about solutions. We talk about pre-registration in journals, researcher degrees of freedom, and then we move on to talk about pseudoscience, science in popular culture, and finally we apply this epistemically cautious empirical worldview that we're advocating to difficult cases of implicit bias, affirmative action, and workplace diversity quotas. So this actually follows on from something I was talking about in a past episode that I got some criticism for. So I talked about implicit bias and that I found this to be a plausible idea in my conversation with existential comics Corey Moller. And a few people wrote to me, and actually this was some pretty thoughtful criticism, pointing out many of the methodological flaws in those studies and admonishing me to be more cautious in toting the results of social sciences that may not be as solid as people imagine. So, yeah, we get into that in some detail in this one, and I'll just quickly clarify my own view. I do find the idea of implicit bias plausible, but I find it plausible because of history, particularly in the case of the US American history. And I find it plausible just because of how I've seen people interact with each other. So for instance, if you're white and listening to this, imagine the following experiment. You walk into a room, say a store, a business, and there's 10 people there. And you talk to them, you come out, and I ask you, what were their names? And they, some of them did tell you, but you've forgotten. I asked you what their ages are, and you I don't know, there's like maybe one older person, I don't know. And I say, okay, everyone in that room was of one race. Were they white or were they black? I would almost bet my life that you would know the answer to that question. That if you were an all-black room or an all-white room, you would have noticed. Maybe you didn't even notice that you noticed, but you would have noticed, if that makes sense. And that doesn't mean you're an overt racist. It doesn't mean you treat black people badly. But I bet you would have noticed. And so that is the sort of intuitive argument of why I find implicit bias plausible. With that said, we do want to be epistemically cautious. And I think what you'll hear in this show is us being cautious about what these results do and don't show us in a way that's still overall grounded in a commitment to anti-racism and social justice. So I find implicit bias, sorry, plausible. But critics of it are quite correct to point out that there are methodological flaws in the studies. So I thought I'd just clarify my own view on that in advance. I'll also just quickly clarify in advance, because we touch a bunch of controversial stuff in this one, my view on workplace diversity trainings. The criticism I have isn't that I don't think they should happen. Indeed, I think more of them should happen. Or that I don't think they're important. I think they're very important. I just think that they could be done better. 
I think, more focus on structures of hiring, recruitment, training, and management would produce better results than a a, a narrow focus on culture. So, again, you'll hear me talk about all of that. Just quickly, before we get to today's episode, if you're listening to it on the day it came out, the 17th of November, which is the day I'm recording this, today is my birthday. Huzzah! I have survived another year. So I don't ordinarily do birthday asks, um... I don't really want that much stuff materially, and I work in charity fundraising, and I've learned not to take it home with me, so I generally don't do the Facebook charity asks. I focus on that professionally. However, you're going to guess what's coming. If you would like to give me a birthday gift, and hey, wouldn't blame you if you don't, then um, something that would just help this podcast get out to more people. I've been doing this almost for a year now. It's been great. I never expected it to take off at all. It's such a niche and such a nerdy thing. Um, I I always said if five people listened to it, it would have made it all worthwhile to do. We're approaching something like 50,000 unique viewers having tuned in, and maybe 9,000 subscribers between all the different channels and ways people we could find it. If you could help me get past 10,000 subscribers as a birthday gift, that would be amazing. Here's some real simple ways you can do it. Share this episode or any other episode or the page in general on your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you have followers on. That helps us get out there. Leave a positive review for us on iTunes. I appreciate everyone who's done that. That gets us higher in the rankings and helps more people see it. And finally, sponsors, if you're able to, for any amount, even if it's just a dollar, on Patreon. That also helps boost the show's visibility, and also gives us some funds which I can just use for hosting fees, stuff like that. So, share it, leave a good review, and if you're able to, chip in monetarily. If you could do any one of those three, whichever one is easiest for you, that would be amazing, and I would be very, very, very grateful. So, that's my request for this hallowed day. I hopefully cleaned up potential confusion in advance by just stating what my own views are on these really controversial topics. And yeah, without any further preamble, let's get into the second part of my interview with Brian Earp. forever citing them at you um people are forever oh there was a study and and you're right they use this word there's a study that showed x and i don't know like i think even medicine even like um you know this new diet pill or whatever this all maps to that as well right it would only be something like surgery or something like that where you get the the much higher replication rates because you know if it's going wrong or mechanical engineering or something actually that's a good that's a good question even with surgery surgery you don't know i mean 
This you, is true. Like you can't, you, you, you don't, you're not often, you, you rarely do a placebo sh- surgery or sham surgery. So you don't know whether your surgery is actually more effective than just doing nothing sometimes, unless you get, oh, well, we ran a randomized control trial and we gave, you know, surgery to one group and we gave, gave nothing to the other group. Um, now you're recruiting all sorts of processes that might have, might have something to do with the surgery, but it might have to do with something else. That's, that's a good hard. question. Yeah. What are the what are the fields with the highest replication rates and the lowest replication rates? Like, what what areas can we be reasonably sure that if it's in a peer review journal, it's because it holds up? And what what do we have no clue? Uh, well, we don't we don't have a con- consistent and deep literature of, of replications to even answer that question. Uh-huh. But uh, you know. Um, well, I, there's a sub area of, of uh, psychology that I work in called experimental philosophy, and we we did a kind of big uh, multi-lab replication effort, and our replication rate was up around seventy percent. So that seems okay. But we're, we're, what we're dealing with are cases where there's we ask people like between two cases, and we change a word that really changes your intuition. So you change the word help to harm, for example, in a famous case. And there it's like, you know, that one word change, it's a small change, but you you can definitely change people's intuitions in a way where you kind of almost don't need to run the experiment. You can just run it on yourself, and then you go, yeah, that obviously would change my intuitions. So for for that, you find that that kind of stuff replicates when you have these big effects that, uh, again, you almost don't need inferential statistics to establish. But when you're dealing with tiny effects at the margins where you can only detect them through statistical means because they're not visible to the naked eye, the, you know, there's vast literatures uh, that, that uh, address effects of those size that I really don't, I don't know whether we have good reason to think that we know much at all about what has purportedly been shown in those areas. But in medicine, this is a problem. In neuroscience, it's a problem. I mean, people think neuroscience is this hallowed area because you have, you know, brain charts and things like that. But science, neuroscience is in some respects the worst. One, you have small samples because it's really expensive to run an fMRI machine. And so you don't, you don't have a big data set. Two, you have like hundreds of voxels that you're comparing against each other, which means you're running, you know, unless you're correcting for all the tests that you're running against all those voxels, you're going to have lots of things lighting up in the brain that are just totally false alarms. And they, uh, somebody showed this, there's a study that showed uh, that, that this is happening where they took a dead fish, a dead Atlantic salmon, and put it into a scanner and ran ran some standard tests, uh, did the standard cleaning of the data, did the standard statistical analysis, and they showed, yeah, the you know ventromedial prefrontal cortex is lighting up on this test. Well, it's a dead fish, so no, it wasn't. But they were using the standard methodologies. And so, um, you know, I, it, there's, there's all sorts of areas of, of, of science where just billions of dollars of research funding are being poured into things where the basic methodological issues have not been sorted out because people just learned that this is the way we do it. You know, they got that method in graduate school, they roll it out and do it, do it the same way um, without digging underneath the surface of this and asking what would need to be true of my model for this inference to be valid. And am I making sure that all those things are true? And, you know, am I thinking of the structural issues about, you know, the publication pipeline that are also going to have epistemological consequences for what I'm doing and so forth. And nobody has time for any of that. You just run the experiment and you, you know, publish it according to the norms of your field. Um, but those norms are, are, are pretty rotten in a lot of fields. And there was a sort of house of cards moment where we've been doing this forever, and then someone was like, "Let's actually try and replicate." And it would—it just—it's it, just been garbage piled on top of garbage. And there's been—it's sort of amazing. It took till when? When did the first studies on replication happen? It was only like a few years ago, right? And then 
there's there's a forgotten history here, which is in the 1970s, there was a crisis of confidence in psychology. And if you look at the American Psychologist, there's a paper with that title by Elms, somebody Elms, um, says the crisis of confidence in, in psychology or social psychology. Oh, so this, has, this has happened before. Methodologists, uh, you know, philosophers of science like Paul Meal at the University of Minnesota were writing paper after paper, just throwing, just saying, hey, colleagues, you're doing it all wrong. This statistical method is not valid. Um, your sample sizes are too small. There's too many research degrees of freedom. Nothing that you're saying is actually building on any facts. You're, you're, you're building this all on quicksand. And, you know, everybody kind of begrudgingly admired what Paul Meal said out there in crazy old Minnesota, but nobody changed their, their methods. Hmm. Similarly, Jacob, Jacob Cohen was publishing these papers all throughout the late 60s and 70s saying, you know, um, that's not what the p-value means. You can't use it to draw that kind of inference. Um, you know, here's problems with sampling. Uh, Tony Greenwald in the, in the 70s wrote a famous paper called Unintended Consequences of Prejudice Against the Null. So he said, hey, guys, if we don't publish negative findings, here's a model showing that that entails that much of our literature is going to be complete nonsense. And we go, oh, yeah, good old Tony Greenwald. You know, he's really smart. And But anyway, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And so this, this was all happening, but it was in-house. So this, so this, this it, bizarre it, 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 psychological it, 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 phenomenon yeah. where you can convince yeah. someone and be persuasive and they're like, that's a great point. And that totally applies to this thing in front of me and yet not make the step that it applies to this thing in front of you. Right. And sometimes people even, even can see it, but feel they have no choice. This is the collective action problem that you and I chatted about before we pressed record, which is that, you know, uh, it, take a, Take a good example. I'm, I'm working on some studies right now, and I'm using null hypothesis significance testing to, to draw inferences about my, my findings. Why? Not because null hypothesis significance testing is the best thing, but because 99% of papers in my field use that method, and that's what the reviewers know and so forth. And I'm still learning Bayesian statistics, and I'm not confident that I actually know this other way of doing statistics that's probably better than the way that I'm currently doing it. And so... Um, you know, I'm, I'm tying my hands, I'm pre-registering my findings, you know, I'm trying to do it in the best way that I know how to do. But the point is that people can't just unilaterally change stuff. I can't just do everything according to what I think are the best methods and send it to the journal if the journal doesn't agree with me that those are the best methods. And so what you need is systemic change uh, for, for everybody to agree on what we should be doing. And it's very hard to get that to happen when you have inertia and when you have people who, this is the way we've been doing it for 60 years, why should we change now? And also academia just is a slow-moving thing. Like it just yeah. is, even at the... Which, I mean, I guess there's advantages to that, too, but it, it's, a, it, it's this turning an oil tanker around. So let's, let's close with what this means, because, like, it sounds like, I think if someone followed us through this so far, that the overwhelming punchline is epistemic humility, is stressing how much we don't know. There's a, there's a yeah. note of caution in me, though, in that mm -hmm. there's people who just want to be dismissive of all statistics in a way that seems yeah. unlettered and in a way that seems to just sort of say i don't have to learn about that so screw you and you see yeah. this with a sort of oh i don't believe in all this fancy modern medicine i've got my herbal supplements or whatever you see it yeah. in politics where people go oh the polls are always wrong no, no no the political opinion polls for all that i've just said are really good predictive tools for the social sciences like they get it within four or five points most of the time. 
Like, that's yeah. really good. I mean, you know, you remember the casework missed by two and that happened to be the margin of error that someone won by. But actually, if you drew, like, a predicted popular vote, actual popular vote just on a graph, you'd have a really tight column. They're really good tools. And yeah. I assume, I don't know enough, but you could say other stuff about medicine and psychology. No, there's really valuable data here. So how do you square those two impulses? Because on the one hand, what I want to say to academics whenever they just randomly cite what X has shown is all that we've just said but then yeah. when people who don't know statistics seem to just think well it's all wrong because there's this one specific instance where it was wrong um that seems hopelessly naive as well so how do you how do you square that circle yeah so i think it's a very serious and difficult issue the, the closest i've come is in a, a, a kind of popular piece i wrote about some of this stuff recently where um, I use the uh, analogy to Winston Churchill's famous statement about democracy, where he right. said it's the worst form of government except all the others that have been tried. And I would say that the scientific method and the way that we you know, run our statistics and so forth is the worst method except for all the others. So somebody who has their herbal remedy that can't even pass muster with a, you know, a randomized control trial, that they have even less reason to think that right. there's anything going on there. Um, and there is, of course, a lot of good science. So I'm focusing on the bad science just because people don't realize how much of it there is. And and it's sort of like we, and I really think that reforms are necessary, like major reforms. And I, I, I'm glad to see that there are, you know, a number of people in psychology and other fields who are working really hard to actually change the methods. And adopt pre-registration and adopt uh, uh, results-blind reviewing and so forth. Um, what I would say to the person who, who says, you know, well, I, I can just believe whatever I want, um, that's, that's, that's an even worse method of coming to understand what's going on. <laughs> out the world. If, if you're going to want to see what's going on in scientific literature, but develop some amount of sophistication about how you identify what's likely to replicate and what's not. And in fact, actually, this has been done. So very recently, um, they, uh, they, uh, I think Brian Nozick and his group, uh, took a, took a bunch of studies that had been published in science and nature. And they decided to once again, try to, to replicate these. And I think they were social science studies. Um, and while they were replicating them, they actually set up a betting market with other researchers in the field and said, which of these studies do you think are going to replicate? Huh. And the people who were just betting on this got it almost exactly right, like exactly the right percentage, exactly the studies that replicated or not. And so, you know, there is a way of, of gaining a sort of a, a, a sense of understanding about what is reliable and what's not and and why and and seeing the patterns here um uh so so we can do a lot better than just you know reading tea leaves but um but at the same time we have to have constantly vigilance about slipping because if science is going to serve this epistemological role in society where it's the thing that you know you know, we don't just have to believe in blind authority or our gut feeling or whatever it is, then it's just imperative that science lives up to its potential. And that means that you have to hold its feet to its fire when it's not. And so I, I think that's the best we can do is to say science is, is better at, at, at getting at what's going on than pretty much any other method uh, that's ever been devised. But it has a lot of problems. And those problems have to be addressed in order for it to sort of fully serve this role that it should and must serve in society. Is there anything you feel like we've missed or you'd want to 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 add on? Because I'm definitely not coming at this from an expert point of view. I mean, I guess one final question, actually, I have. Is this just makes sense to me? But, like, I'm self-professed about as far from an expert on, like, the philosophy of science as you're going to get. And it seems like when you're saying 
let's publish negative results. Let's, you know, set it up beforehand and restrict researcher degrees of freedom, I think was the phrase you used. Um, is there, like, an argument against this, or is it just, like, institutional inertia? Is there, is there like, a reason people would say, no, well, we do it 95% of the time this other way for X, Y, and Z reasons? Um, I guess it's just harder to do, and it takes more time and resources, but is there, what, what, do, what would someone who disagreed with you say? Like, is there a reason that this isn't just being rolled out across the board other than just, well, that's not how we do things? One argument that's sometimes raised against pre-registration, which I think is offered in good faith, but I think is mistaken, is that it will restrict the creativity of scientists. They mm -hmm. say, listen, part of what science is, is just groping around in a black box and bumping into stuff. And sometimes that throws up the great discovery that you never would have got were you restricted in all these ways that you're proposing. And we want to find some trade-off between seeming rigor of methods, which can also lead to methodological monism, where, you know, everybody gets you know, a new ritual that they start following and unthinkingly employing. You know, we need to have flexibility of thinking. Once you start getting everybody to just do science by following a recipe, then uh, a lot of the best ideas are never going to emerge. So I think that's one uh, one way that somebody might respond. And and to this, I would just say that, you know... But you can do, do both. Do, you can do both, exactly. Pre-register pre what you're going to do. If, you, if, 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 you, if you've got a strong hunch that such and so will be the case because if you've been following the literature and you've got a lot of experience and you've been running some pilot studies in your lab, then bet on it publicly. And then if, if it turns out that you have a crazy idea after the fact, just do truth in advertising and let everyone know that you had the idea after the fact. And nobody's stopping you from being creative. But just let people know when what you're doing is being hunchy and creative and let people know when you're doing confirmatory statistical analysis. And, and as long as you label each thing for what it is, then I, as the reader of the paper, can make a more informed judgment about what I should draw from your purported findings. I mean, that seems so, that just seems obvious though, right? I think it is. I think pre-registration is obviously something that should be taken up immediately uh, as as the norm, and it, and it kind of is. I will say in, in psychology, you know, if I see a paper that hasn't that has you know its key finding isn't based on something that was pre-registered, uh, I, I just shrug my shoulders. I kind of go, well, yeah, I don't know, maybe. I, and I think that's happened over overnight, essentially, where it's now the case that um, if you have a study that isn't moving toward these new methods, it's already become a little bit suspicious. And so I think that's good. I think that the, the norm is changing. And that's, I mean, that's a good takeaway for like readers is um, look at, that's, that's one thing to look at when you're going into a study. I mean, a lot of the times when I read psychology research, I actually find that the argumentation surrounding the statistics is more convincing than the statistics in that people often just produce credibility arguments like look you are a person in the world you know this is how people behave here's like some argumentation based on that i often find that more compelling than like oh we asked 200 undergraduates this thing you know what i mean yeah exactly i mean um People were doing science long before we had inferential statistics. I mean, sometimes just descriptive statistics where you say, this is, these, are, these are the characteristics of the sample. You know, it seems reasonable that you might draw this kind of conclusion. There was, there was a lot of important stuff that happened before we had p-values and t-tests. Uh, and, and once we got those, people felt like they sort of needed to supplement whatever they were saying with a nice p-value. But sometimes you're just making a good argument and, you know, uh, based on plausible premises. And if that's the case, then, then yeah, it isn't really adding, adding anything to the story. 
And there's this kind of like needing to prove that we're a real science thing, I think, that can happen to social scientists. And economists are the fucking worst. I was talking to an economist ages ago who will remain nameless. And we both agreed. I won't go through the whole thing, but that like this is intuitively plausible and um basically the the um when it comes to um a lot of political actions, people are just behaving in ways that are not easily captured by rational choice theory, essentially, and all of the implications of that. And we agreed that this was just plausible based on just, like, we know people, you know? Um, And then he said, but now I've got to go find some math to show that. Yeah. And I just thought, well, no, we're we're agreed that, you know, this is how people actually behave. And and, and, But you don't need to go find math. you're, You're just making your paper less intelligible by doing that, but probably a lot more publishable. Yeah. I want to go back to one thing we were worried about earlier. How do we, you know, how do we avoid the quacks and the pseudoscientists who wanted to say that they have just as much standing to make a claim as anyone else? What I I would say is that in a strict sense, we don't, we don't know anything, but uh, what we should, the, the, the attitude we should adopt is that what we have most reason to believe and to go with is what is, you know, the scientific consensus on some view. Unless we have something that's even, you know, that we have even greater reason to think that the entire scientific consensus is wrong. And for that, I would need even more evidence, like really, really good evidence and like highly replicated evidence and so forth. Not just my hunch that it's all a conspiracy. That's fair. That's like down at the bottom of the evidence pile. So what I would say is um, scientific consensuses has, have often been wrong. If you look throughout the history of science, all sorts of things were thought to be true and scientifically validated and so forth. And later we think that that's probably not the case. I think it really is true that in some strict sense, we don't know for sure, uh, lots of stuff that a lot of people take for granted, but that might be as good as we can know until we, and we should know it defeasibly. We should know it being open to the fact that, yeah, it could be wrong. So when we read something in The Guardian, you know, and it says the scientists have shown blah, we should take it with a grain of salt. We should kind of go, well, maybe. And probably you can find some science blog somewhere where somebody who read the paper carefully has already, you know, t- torn it apart and, and shown. I mean, I remember this, this uh, from, from when I was an undergrad. We'd sit in our journal club and, and we'd get whatever's the latest paper out of science or nature in our field or psychological science. And what we would do as, as undergrads is we'd sit there and the professor would show us how to tear the paper apart. They'd be like, well, you see, they use that method and, they, you know, this survey question doesn't really answer the thing and they shouldn't have used that and you know you can see they sort of set this up wrong and so what we what we learned was that when when a paper is published that's just a progress report it just means like somebody tried something and here's some stuff in favor of that view but you might have a different view and let's go run a study and see what happens the problem is that when when newspapers pick up studies they treat them like they're facts they treat them like a, a, a paper means that something was found. And, of course, other researchers do this, too. And they say, you know, so, as so-and-so has shown. And they shouldn't do that. But journalists are, are especially bad, where they say, you know, so-and-so has shown or new promising cancer treatment or whatever. If everybody understood that a scientific paper is just a progress report, it's just a statement of what we think, and here's our reasons for thinking of it, and we might be wrong. And here, and especially, if, you know, if I've shown my work, if I posted my data and my code in a public repository, so you can go and check my statistics to make sure that you got the same finding, um, you know, then that's pretty good reason to to lean toward that view until somebody comes up with better evidence against it. So, so it's just this 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 sort of rush to judgment. We should all we should all. Uh, you know, uh, defeasibly know what we need to know to move around in the world, but always be open to the thought that the scientists might have got it wrong. But that doesn't mean that the pseudoscientist down the street is going to get it any more right, except by chance. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's certainly no greater uh, reason to believe something than, than what you have with whatever the current 
scientific view seems to be. Um, so here's one that I've been thinking about a lot, like a lot, a lot recently, is I don't know if you've come across the literature on, like, um, subconscious bias as it relates to things like race and gender and stuff like that. A lot of literature showing or purporting to show that we're, for instance, more likely to um, associate negative words with a blackface and positive words. There's a test where they... I've actually done this test myself where you play a little video game and you're a policeman and you have to decide whether to shoot the suspect or not. And the punchline is people are more willing to shoot black suspects than white overall on aggregate. And this seems to me like it, like the exact instance where you'd want epistemic humility. And But the problem is, is people on both sides are so desperate to see something there. There's a good category of people who want to deny that, you know, let's just take racism. Racism is a problem at all in America and will pick yep. apart, will seize on legitimate methodological critiques of this work, which there are, to say, yep. you see there's X problem, this means that there's no result and you're all a bunch of whiny social justice types wasting your time. Yep. But then yep. on the other side... There's people whose careers are in giving diversity seminars at corporations who really yep. want to be able to say stuff on the basis of this literature that um, the literature itself doesn't purport to say and would, you know, you'd probably want to be cautious about the claims anyway. And I think this, to me, is an exact instance of, like, actually, it's more like what is intuitively plausible you know, given American history. And just, you know, you've been in the world. You've seen that people react a little bit differently when someone isn't of their race. Doesn't mean they're wearing a hood, but you, you can see it in the world. Like, yeah. actually, that intuitive plausibility is probably stronger than the statistical evidence. Um, but people really either want the statistics to be written gold or to be just demonstrably falsified in a way that isn't, isn't like a, a mature understanding of statistics would never get you to either point of view. I don't know if you've thought about that issue at all, or how yes, you'd approach I, I, that. I, 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 this is such an important issue. I was talking to somebody about it just yesterday. Um, so, yeah, this is this is really important. The first thing I would say is that when you're making a moral or a political argument, you should try really hard not to tether it to any contested empirical claim, because then what's going to happen is that you're going to have an interest in what the data show, and you should you don't want that to be the case, because then if the data turn out not to support your view you're fucked because now your moral argument doesn't run run through. So don't rest your moral argument on it. One case I've, I've argued this about is this sort of born this way or I can't change gay rights movement. I said, yeah, listen, it might be the case that you can't currently change your sexual orientation given what we know about, you know, how it all works and the methodologies that are available. Um, that seems seems like that's probably true. But what if you could in the future? What if somehow, you know, if it's all brain-based and due to your genetics, and what if in the future it's some high-tech conversion therapy is invented and all of a sudden you can change your sexual orientation? Are you then going to say it's okay to discriminate against you? Presumably not. So that that shouldn't be your argument. The argument shouldn't be based on something that's not, that's, that's sort of you have to wait for the latest paper to come out of uh, science to tell you whether gay people should be treated with respect. That you know, don't rest your argument. And on also, you wouldn't. It points. wouldn't change your mind. So don't give it. People made the argument: oh, yeah. the death penalty costs more money. Well, say it was cheaper. Would you suddenly support it? Like, no, that's not exactly. actually the basis of what you're saying. So give me your real reason. You know. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I also uh, have a, a piece on this recently where people say about um, there's. So I write sometimes on these uh, surgeries that various groups do to children for initiation rights and so forth. And the, the, the groups that are concerned about when these surgeries are done to women, so so-called uh, female genital mutilation, they say it has no health benefits. 
I think to myself, so if it had some health benefits, you would think it's okay? Presumably not. So stop talking about health benefits. You, you know, you think it's wrong because it's a violation of her bodily integrity or something. I mean, you don't need to appeal to any data to make your moral case. So just make your moral case. Um, uh, so I think that's a, that's a general point. And then when it comes to like specific policies, here's, here's where this matters. So a friend and I were talking about affirmative action the other day. And I, as a good liberal, said, yeah, well, you know, affirmative action, that seems like a good thing because it's, you know, meant to try to make up for past injustice and so forth. But I, but I realized I actually have no idea whether it's an effective policy. Like, all I know is that people who tend to share my moral and political views thought it was a good idea at some point and, you know, got it put in place. And certainly their hearts were in the right place. But, you know, your heart being in the right place is not very good evidence for a policy actually being effective. And here's why this matters. Let's say that my, my sole goal in life is to promote racial justice. And let's say that it just happens to be the case that affirmative action isn't the best way of doing that. Like maybe there's some other way that's better. I actually won't even be able to have that thought if I have confused the fact that affirmative action was put in place by people who share my moral views with with having actual evidence that's effective. Now, first of all, somebody else might have evidence that it is, is effective. I just don't know. But what that means is when I'm having debates with my friends about what the right policy should be, I shouldn't say things like affirmative action is the best policy. I should say literally I literally don't know anything about that question. I don't know how you would test it. I don't know what the design would be. I don't know how you would, you can't run a randomized control trial using some other policy. So I assume it's a complicated issue. It probably has some good effects and some bad effects, but it's just become a symbol. Affirmative action just is a symbol that means I'm not racist or it's an anti-racist policy. And so if somebody says, well, maybe it's not the best way of actually promoting racial justice, all of a sudden people say, oh, you're, you know, something's wrong with you. You're not a part of the right team. And my thought is if, if what you want to do is promote racial justice and social justice and all these sorts of things, you should want to do it on the basis of what you have best reason to know. And, and that means you have to be open to the fact that when you don't know anything about a topic, which is true for most of us about most stuff, we should be humble. We should say, yeah, I honestly, I haven't looked into, you know, the data on affirmative action. I assume it works because, uh, you know, I tend to agree with the people who come up with these sorts of policies based on past experience or something like that. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, there might be a, another policy that's better. And we, we should be willing to say that if we want the world to be better, because like you said, we want our beliefs to be based on what we have best reason to think. And I think particularly, so this is my wheelhouse, I've worked in social justice for a long time now, I think particularly with this, this is where you want to be most epistemically humble, but like you say, people in this space will wear commitment to particular policies as a badge of like being on the right side, which I think is understandable because life is short and there are real racists out there and we do want to have these red flags in our mind to like know when to avoid people, but it is actually the case that it also, following on from what you said, what are you actually trying to achieve? If you're doing some workplace diversity initiative, is the goal to have a particular, you know, a representative sample in your workforce? And if not, what is the goal? And I'm an integrationist. I would actually say it's not the only goal. But yeah, actually, having you know, at least like 30% non-white in your workforce, and that's mapped up all the levels up to from the, the, you know, the senior leadership team down. Yeah, I'd say that's actually a decent benchmark. Now, it's not, it's not sufficient. You know, you could have that sort of breakdown, but everyone treats each other horribly. But it's actually a good start, and I think there's a lot of evidence that culture follows structures rather than the other way around. And I think people get so hung up on this cultural side of things. Whereas actually, so I'll do this one really quick. I was on a um, diversity initiative with an organization way back when, and they became obsessed with this subconscious bias literature and, uh, you know, this sort of self-flagellation of white guilt. And, and it was a very white organization. 
And I ran the data. And what would you expect to find if people were discriminating, albeit subconsciously? You'd expect to find stuff like, you know, if you have 20% black applicants, you only hire 10%, right? You'd expect to see a difference at point of hire. No, you, you saw no difference at all. It's just that you weren't attracting black applicants, right? And then people want to say, oh, well, maybe black people just aren't interested in this field. No, because like all of the different sites you can post your jobs on, will get very, very different demographics. If you post only on Idealist, you're going to get upper-class white men and women. That's just who goes to that site. And there's such a reluctance to hear that. For some reason, here's what's really perverse about this debate. People would rather believe that they have some sort of inbuilt People would rather believe one of two things. One, it's not a problem at all, and you're a jerk for bringing it up. And I think we intuitively know that's not plausible. Like, racism is a real thing, sexism a real thing. But then on the liberal side, people would rather believe that they have this, like, sin of, like, white guilt and white privilege to atone for than to believe that there's actually quite simple structure. Write your job description differently. If you have more than five points on a job description, it alienates less advantaged people. They think it's meant to shut them out. Post it on a, a, a wide... And I literally did those two things. And the number of black applicants tripled. Just wrote the job description differently and posted it differently. And it was actually the organization listed it as one of their top three accomplishments that year. But it was just so simple. Just It, it, like, it was like 10 minutes of work. And people would... It's so weird. They'd rather believe that there's something deeply and irreparably wrong with them, and maybe there is, right, than that there's simple structural things that you can discover just through basic evidence. I found that so psychologically weird. That's a bit of a tangent, but I found that so weird about people. I, I think that's exactly right. I, I think the thing we should be concerned with is what, uh, what works. And if you want to know what works, you have to be open to the current policy that you, you know, that, that, that ostensibly is supporting that goal might not be the best one. Maybe there's some other way of doing it, a simple fix that wouldn't even occur to you if you made the mistake of, of, of conflating your moral commitments for a particular policy or a particular interest in how a certain data set comes out. It's like you can keep, you know, you can have your moral commitments and then you should just be super open-minded about the best way to achieve them. And it might be not what you think. Uh, and, and in fact, if, again, if your goal is to help people, that open-mindedness and, and a willingness to, to recognize when you don't know something, that when you're just supporting something because that's what your friends support, um, that open-mindedness is going to make you more capable of achieving your social justice goals. So, you know, adopt that. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to say, look, I'm not an expert on these studies. I'm coming from a place where I know racism is real. I've seen it happen. I couldn't quantify yeah. that claim. And I'm coming from a place where I feel like that's wrong because of intrinsic dignity or whatever. And I'm not yeah. an expert on the history or the statistics. That is okay to say that. It's, but yeah. I sometimes wonder if both on the left and the right, and I find a lot of what the right says about social justice to just kind of be not morally correct um but yeah. even on the yeah. left that we're more uh, interested in identifying with a certain team than actually getting it right mm -hmm. yeah and then and then i think it's it's more about us than about the change we want to make in the world there's a parallel here with these uh, so-called effective altruists where they make the point that a lot of people give money to charity supposedly to do good but often it's really because it makes them feel better you know, oh, I'm, I gave money to charity. And their point is, listen, do you want to actually help help people 
like save more lives, then you should do a lot of research and figure out which charity actually accomplishes that goal. And you should give just to that charity, not to like, you know, the one down the street that makes you feel good. So what's your, what's your goal? Is it to make the world better or is it to make you feel like you're on the right political team? And if it's the latter, you've got a deeper moral problem to address than, uh, than you realize. Yeah. I, um, I had Will McCaskill on the podcast a little while back. I, I, I love that guy. I think like just his yeah. approach, the way he thinks about things, it's just exactly, exactly. But look, I mean, I've worked in the charity sector for a bit. I would say people's decision to give to charity is not just in part, it's almost exclusively about how it makes them feel in the moment, and also as a matter of identification. What does it say about me that I'm doing this? And the, the interesting thing is people reject charities for the same reason. People say, oh, you know, I'm a, you won't get, if you're doing fundraising, which I've done a lot of, people sort of say things like, oh, you won't get one over me, son. I know I've been around the world. I know charities, you know, waste their money. It's true. Some charities do waste their money. This is like a kind of dirty open secret in the world that a lot of charities just fundraise for the sake of having a budget. This is true. But there's also ones that do an incredible amount of good. And But you're not, not only do people do good to signal their sort of in-group membership, but they don't do good to signal their in-group membership. They won't give to charity because they want to project an image as being worldly and gruff and no-nonsense, which I just, I, I find bizarre, but it's so true. It happens all the time. You know, uh, uh, Dan Kahan, I also want to say Kahane, that's wrong, it's Kahan here at the uh, Yale Law School, has done a lot of really interesting work on this about sort of the mechanism by which people come to hold certain views. It has more to do with social identification than with sort of their, you know, epistemic grounding. So here's, here's an example of this. Let's say that you're a conservative businessman in the, in, in the, in the South, uh, just to get really stereotypical here, and, you know, all your friends believe that climate change is a hoax to... Uh, uh, to make uh, your business harder to run and less profitable. And and then you do some browsing around online, and you come across some studies, and you kind of come to privately hold the view that actually maybe there's, you know, as far as you know, there's good evidence that climate change is a problem. Now, now in, in figuring out what, what belief you should hold, let's look at the consequences of this. Okay, so you come to hold the belief that climate change is happening, and we're just stipulating here that, that you know, that it's roughly the view that's, uh, you know, currently promulgated by the, the scientific establishment. So let's just say that's true. You come to hold that view, um, well, what happens? You don't make the world any better. You don't solve climate change. You don't, you know, nothing good comes of you holding this view, but you do lose all your friends. And so in, on his view, on, on a certain picture of rationality, it's quite rational to form beliefs that just happen to be the beliefs that the people that you depend on for social and emotional support and so forth believe almost completely orthogonal to whether those beliefs are true. Um, and then, you know, if, if what you're mostly interested in is what do I have best reason to believe, even if this will alienate friends, or even if this will make me seem suspicious to my in-group or whatever, you have to have quite a lot of uh, social capital that you can spend to do that. Because, you know, let's let's say that I'm, you know, read something and I, I think there's this really great idea coming out of, you know, conservative political philosophy. And let's say most of my friends are, are these uh, really progressive people. Affirmative and, and action say, would be a really good example of that. Yeah, that'd be that, good, would, yeah. that would you know, significantly harm my social exactly. capital to come out against that. And again, like I, I simply don't know. I don't take a, a stand. I don't know whether that's the best policy. I assume for now that it is. But let's say that I did some research and I was pretty, pretty sure that it wasn't. Like, who am I going to tell? Like, okay, so I talked to my friends. I, they better really deeply trust me and know my moral motivations and really know that I've thought through it a lot. Or they're just going to be like, whoa, you're not one of us. And so I, given that that's in the background, of course I'm going to have these deep 
you know, motivations ro- roiling around under the surface uh, at all hours to try to get me to believe the things that um, will keep me in good standing in my group. And, and, and that's a very serious issue that we have to figure out how to address because we don't just want to be point scoring. We don't just want to be socially signaling. We want to make the world better. And it does and- It does take a certain amount. I'll give you just, I'll sum up what I just said. If you're doing, here's one I will stick, stick my neck out for. And I do because I think it's important and I think I'm right and I'm open to hear evidence that I'm not. But if you're doing diversity work or anti-racism work, people in that space comparatively overrate, or not even overrate, but overrate their ability to influence culture, subliminal prejudice, stuff like that. And they massively underrate the role of very simple structures like job descriptions, hiring practices, stuff like that, right? I'll absolutely stick my neck out for that, and that's a much bigger set of claims. But I do notice a difference in that if I'm representing that view, it doesn't matter the race of the person I'm representing it to, it matters how well they know me. If it's someone I don't know very well, they can react quite badly to that view, because it can read as, like, you're telling me racism isn't a real thing, which isn't what I'm saying. I'm saying the comparative gains in one way of addressing it are much greater than the comparative gains in another way of addressing it, which is not to say that other way of addressing it has no value, but, like, we need to spend more effort on the structural side. Whereas people who know me well, black or white can completely entertain that. But the reaction I get is how long that person has known me, which would be a data point to add to sort of what you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the the people who sort of know your character, know where your heart is, when you say, you know, are we really going about this the right way? Then there's some give and take. And, you know, this is probably rational too, right? If I don't know somebody and they start saying stuff that sounds like what Richard Spencer would say, I, I think it's, you know, as a, as a pretty good heuristic, given I have limited time and resources to figure out who my friends should be, yeah, probably that's not a good path. But, uh, you know, if I know somebody really well and I've seen over time that they've demonstrated that their, you know, uh, moral motives are strong and so forth, and they say, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised by this view, but I actually am starting to think that maybe such and so, well, okay, you know, I should. I should be I, open to that. I so, actually, you know, maybe it's, maybe yeah. it's happening just as it should. I actually just talked about this with Glenn Lowry, who's like a very conservative commentator who happens to be black. And I sort of said, but like, it's rational, given that there are real racists out there. I think sometimes with race, we set the trip lines a little bit too close. And you could, you could, I think, disagree with affirmative action without being racist. My trip line for race is the fucking race and IQ stuff. Like, as soon as it becomes really important to someone, there's a test gap. Sure, you can be racist and, and no, you can be not racist and notice that. But as soon as it becomes really important to, for someone to argue that differential outcomes are geared in genetics and black people are just have a lower IQ on average, as soon as someone wants to really represent that point of view, that's a line when I do begin to think that they're badly intentioned. Well, yeah. So, so for me, it's especially when the person isn't an intelligence researcher, right? So, right. So. The thing is, like, I was talking about... And that's just, like, the one... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, well, we were talking about Charles Murray, and we were talking about, like, well, what exactly is his claim? And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't read The Bell Curve, to be honest. Man, you know, did I listen to, like, part of a podcast once where he said some stuff? Like, I actually don't know what the claim is. And so, for me, I'm just willing to say, like, listen, I actually don't know that research, but, you know... uh, my, my general view is that we shouldn't be setting our, you know, uh, our, our moral vision on which group differences may or may not exist on I, IQ level, but I'm not an expert. And for other people who aren't an expert, but they're just like really convinced that they're like, well, it's just all a conspiracy. And, you know, people don't want to know the truth about the IQ stuff. And it's like, really, do you know how to read any of these studies? Like, it's hard. 
I have some colleagues who are IQ researchers and work in genetics and so forth. And I could probably sit down with them for a few hours and get a rough idea of what's going on in that field. But, you know, you know, and I, and I work in psychology. I've been learning about these things kind of tangentially throughout my whole training. And still, I'm, I'm sort of like, yeah, I don't really know how to read these studies. I don't know. I'd, ha- I'd ha- really have to be an expert in that. And if you're anything short of an expert and you've got that degree of confidence that this is like a really important issue, the, the you know, the the suppressing of the, the – it's like, yeah, I think that that's a, a good signal that maybe your starting point or your priorities or your character is something that I might want to be cautious around. And I, I think that's a good, as you say, tripling. Yeah, I, I mean, I talk publicly about social justice a lot, and I'll, I'll correspond with anyone. If people write me, I write them back. Um, but when someone when someone leads with that, I just sort of give up in advance. Sorry, but I do. Um, especially when I was actually like talking about gay rights, and you want to talk, yeah, like if I was talking about something unrelated, <laughs> you bring it up. Like, why yeah, is this yeah. that in, that in, that important to you? Let's pause there. You've been very generous with your time. Um, if listeners want to look up your work or follow you. Where should they go? Do you have a website, uh, Twitter, anything like that? Yeah, if you type my name into Google, it's Brian uh, dot uh, E A R P. Uh, I don't know why I said dot. It's like I'm giving my email address. But uh, yeah, there's an academia.edu page and uh, Twitter and so forth, so people can find me. Cool. Great. Listen, thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed this and feel like I've learned a lot, so thank you. Uh, likewise, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Coming up next, next week I will be giving you my discussion with Glenn Lowry. So you've heard me give a bunch of social justice views on this podcast. I'm going to invite someone on to criticise them, so that should be interesting. Then the week after, I'll do an audience questions episode. So I've already referenced a bunch of good comments and whatever that I've been getting on the podcast. If you have any questions you'd like to ask me about any of the topics that have been covered, or really about anything, send them in. Hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, you can email me. The links to followers on social media as well as my email are all on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So do keep all all of those comments coming in. After that, I'll be doing a two-parter with the philosopher Philip Pettit on the foundations of an ethical worldview in a naturalistic universe. Dr. Rupert Reed will also be coming back on to talk about Wittgenstein and language. And Shadi Hamid, a Brooklyn scholar and Atlantic contributor, will be coming on to talk to us about political Islam. So lots of stuff coming up from now through to the good new year. So please do stay tuned. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you want to help us get up to 10,000 subscribers, please do share this episode or any other episodes you like on your social media. Leave a review on iTunes. Or if you're able, chip in on Patreon. Any one of those things would be great. And a big thank you to anyone who's done any of those things. I didn't expect the show to take off the way it has. I mean, take off's maybe an overstatement, but gain a following whatsoever. So this has been really amazing, and I really do value any comments people have and any actions people do take to help get the show out there. So thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week. Oh, one question, actually. I've got, which I'll answer in advance, is what the hell is the opening music? It is a genre I like called chill step, which is kind of like electronic music, but chill.
The track that I always play is called Sapphiros Beyond. And you know what? Just for once, let's listen to the whole thing. <laughs> 